listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Thirsty Thursday Women's Online Wellness Facebook Live. I'm going tonight a bit commando, so I pop, now get your mind out of the gutter. It's not what you think. I'm just I'm dealing with some technical issues. Imagine that. For those of you who watch this on any regular basis, know that I live in a world of technical issues. So I'm going uh, tonight uh, with a little bit less lower technology, but not any less incredible information, not any less valuable stuff. So forgive me for the little glitch when I first started. Hopefully that's gone and hopefully we're not we're going to be glitch free for the next 15 or 20 minutes as we spread joy and happiness throughout the Internet and give you some practical advice that you can use from here on out. You know, tonight, I'm really excited, even though I'm going commando. Again, stop it. I know what you're thinking. That's not what I mean. I'm going technology. Uh, whoops, about pulled my phone out of the thing there. Hopefully, you can still hear me there. I get so excited, I just knock stuff over and hope I don't knock my phone over. But uh, Again, I get excited because when I have information that I feel is valuable, you know, it doesn't take much to get me excited these days. I mean, it's probably like a lot of like you is our level of excitement is has a very low bar. I mean, give me a ham sandwich and a good Merlot and I'm excited beyond belief in this day and time. It just doesn't take much to get me fired up about life, which is a good thing. This sets the bar low. That way I can really appreciate things a lot easier. But I really got excited when I saw a couple of studies this week that had nothing to do with COVID. Nothing. It wasn't even the word COVID-19 didn't even appear in these studies. But what did appear was some incredibly exciting news for ways that you can overcome what many of you may unfortunately believe are the chains that bind you and that by that I mean your genes how many of us grew up I mean we we grew up a lot of us uh, you know 10 15 20 30 40 years ago going through high school learning about our genetics learning about the biology and if you were like me you were taught that we were kind of set we were just learning about genes I mean believe it or not you know, 40, 50 years ago, we were just kind of getting a sense of this stuff uh, about what makes up our body, the genetics of it all. I mean, Watson and Crick had labeled DNA and told us all about that back in the late 50s. But the technology, I mean, just the thought of being able to sequence somebody's genome, much less swab your cheek and send it to some online place and actually get a readout of your genetic makeup was just absurd. That was nuts. Nobody thought about that. That wasn't even on the radar. But now we can do it at a home at test home test kit. You can get your complete genetic profile sent off for these you know, less than 150 bucks now, which is nuts. It's crazy. But we we were taught and believe that 
we were largely a product of our genes. We were who we were because of our genetic makeup. And that was exciting because we were learning new science, but it was also kind of intimidating because it kind of said, well, gee, it's, it's, it's just this random come together of this sperm and the egg that creates me, and I don't have any say-so in it, and I couldn't pick my parents, and it just happened. And so there, it's just predetermined that I'm going to be this way, that way, or the other way. And, and it, it kind of was depressing in a way. I mean, you just kind of thought about it like, well, gee, if, if I'm just stuck with it, if I can't change it, that just, that sucks. I just, that, I really don't like that. And we were brought up with that was, that was the science behind it. And that was, uh, we were just really prisoners of our genetic makeup. And when it came to things like diseases, it was inevitable if you had the genetics for that disease, just suck it up, buttercup. There's nothing to be done about it. Now, there are some things, and I guess what I'm leading to is there's a whole lot today that that doesn't apply. You got from my title that you're not a prisoner of your genes or your genes, but I wanted to explain that in the context of a couple of specific disease entities. So let me just say from the outset that we are not now just completely captivated. We're not deterministic. In other words, we actually have a lot more control over our destiny when it comes to our health than we ever thought possible, that we ever thought was it. Now, there's some things that won't change. For example, um, there's some things you were born with in your genetic makeup that no matter what you do is not going to alter that. Your height, for example. Uh, take me, for example. My, my dad was pretty short. My mom was short. So genetically, I was destined to, to be a hobbit. You know, I was never going to get a basketball scholarship. I might have gotten a scholarship to be the hobbit of the month or something in some calendar but I was never going to be tall. That was preset by genetics. That's not going to be altered. The same thing with things like eye color and hair color. Those things don't change. You're born with those, and I don't care how much you eat strawberries, you're not going to turn your hair from blonde to red. It just doesn't work that way. However, with the discovery of this science called epigenetics, there's something you can go to your next cocktail party and really blow people away. You know, oh, yeah, epigenetics, yeah, it's great stuff. You know, they'll be impressed. But it's simply the way that our behavior, the things we do, the things we associate with, the things we eat, the activities we perform, the things we don't do, can actually impact how the genes that you are born with are expressed. In other words, what you're born with doesn't necessarily translate in to what gets made in your body, the proteins that are so critically important for things like heart disease or breast cancer, which we're going to talk about tonight. So things that you do, nutrition, activity, sleep, stress, smoking, drinking, just a whole variety of things can actually change how the DNA in your, it doesn't change the DNA, but it changes how it translates into the formation of protein. It turns it on or turns it off. So the good news is 
you got a lot of control over that stuff. The bad news is you got a lot of control over that stuff. So it puts the responsibility back on your head. It kind of, and some people actually use the excuse of, oh, it's just my genes. You know, I can't do this, that, or the other. I was destined to be this way because of my genetic makeup. Well, I hate to pop your genetic bubble, but it's just not the case. You actually can change a whole bunch. And that was a big lead in to this study I was mentioning that's come out of that I, that I saw in my news feed not long ago about how what you do, your behavior, can reduce your incidence of breast cancer even in people who are at a genetic high risk for breast cancer. Now, we know that there is a group of folks out there that because of some of the changes in their genes, do have an increased risk for breast cancer. We, we knew that for years because we would look at family histories. We'd see moms, grandmoms, sisters, uh, aunts, and you would begin to see this, this uh, preponderance of breast cancer in families. Now, the reality is, and this will kind of freak you out a little bit, 70% of people who develop breast cancer have no family history. That just blows people away when I tell them that, that just because you don't have a mother or grandmother or a sister uh, who does not have breast cancer, I hear this all the time, oh, nobody in my family's had breast cancer. Well, 70% of women who develop it can make that statement. So that doesn't protect you. Now, granted, if you have a mother, a sister, a grandmother, or a first-degree relative who has breast cancer, it increases your risk largely because of these genetic what we call polymorphisms. Everybody probably by now has heard of things like the BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are very identifiable genes that markedly increase a person's risk for breast cancer. It's fascinating. These genes code for a protein that helps repair damaged DNA. So if you can't repair that damaged DNA, you're at higher risk for those cells to become abnormal, essentially cancer cells. So people who have the BRCA gene have an increased risk for breast cancer, for ovarian cancer, and certain other cancers. And that's, that's an example of a single gene that really increases a person's risk. But when we look at overall genetic risk for breast cancer, it's largely a conglomeration of a lot of little small changes. In fact, this study looked at about 90,000 women. So right off the bat, this is a big study. This is statistics that you can, you can really sink your teeth in. This wasn't like six people held in somebody's basement and experimented on. This was 90,000 folks, women. And they had their genetic profiles. They had all the genetic profiles and they searched for 305 different, what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs for short. And all that means is uh, one or two little amino acids or base pairs in their gene was, was different, so it made it an abnormal gene. Oh, we all have those. We all have these SNPs in our genes. If you got 23andMe and you had your, your genes analyzed, you'd, you'd have a bunch of these little SNPs. Most of them are completely inconsequential, but some of them do increase your risk of developing breast cancer. 
Well, they've identified at least 305 different types of these little mutations. And what they did is they got all these 90,000 people and they categorized them based on these genetic tests into low risk for breast cancer, intermediate risk for breast cancer, or high risk for breast cancer. So they've got them in those three categories based on their genetics. So if we just stopped there, it would really stink because you'd be saying, well, all right, I know it now. I'm high risk for breast cancer. Great. You know, I better, uh, I better enjoy life now. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of misinformation in, in that kind of data anyway. But the, the good news and what I wanted to relate to you tonight is even in people who are at high risk genetically, there are several things that they proved in this study that you can do that will actually lower that risk, almost reducing it to the same risk as the general population. How's them cookies? Gives you back control. It removes the fear because if you can do these simple things, and I promise you they're relatively simple, there are five things they looked at. And if you can do those things, then you can reduce your risk. You can increase that epigenetic profile, reduce your genetic risk, and live a long, happy life, theoretically. So, I know you're all sitting there saying, well, what the heck are those five things? I'm going to go out and buy those pills right now. I'm going down to Walgreens, and you better call my script in for that pill, because I want that, and I'm going to start on it now. Sorry, it ain't a pill. I know that disappoints you. But what, are, what they are are these five, what they called, uh, these were five categories. And the reason they chose these five was because other studies through the years have shown individually that these five things reduce the incidence of breast cancer. So they wanted to see, all right, if somebody was doing maybe four out of those five, would that impact it if they were at high risk for breast cancer? And what if they were only doing two out of these five? Would that impact their risk? All right, well, let's get to those five. And they're not going to surprise you. You've all heard them before. But the reason you're going to hear them again, because it's true. It's like if I told you every day of the week the sun was rising, you'd get sick of hearing me talk about the sun rising, but it doesn't take away the truth that the sun's going to rise. And the same thing applies to these things. But I thought they're very interesting because they're all controllable, controllable factors. Uh, so, number one, people who are active. That was one of the first categories. People who are active. People who are active show that they reduce their incidence of breast cancer. Now, what does active mean? That's the secret sauce. What do you mean by active? Well, in this particular study, they considered someone active if they exercised uh, two hours at a moderate level a week. Not a day, a week. Basically 30 minutes every other day or 45 minutes every other day at moderate intensity. And that's a brisk walk. So that's our bar for exercise. You're not training for a marathon. You're not sweating at the gym. You're going out and taking a dad burn walk for 30 or 45 minutes, four times a week. Even if you can't do that, if you're, if you're uh, homebound, or you shouldn't be homebound now because being outside is the best place you can be. But say you can't get out of a chair. Well, using 
light weights uh, doing, uh, the, there's these, these little stationary, they look like bikes, but you can do them with your arms. Body weight, res or body weight resistant exercises where you don't need a gym, you don't need a treadmill, you don't need weights, you don't need bars. You can do it all on basic body weight exercise. The, the, the bottom line is just move, just move. So that was the first thing was, was moderate exercise for 30 minutes, uh, four times a week. That was the first criteria that they were looking at. Uh, the second was maintaining a healthy weight. What does that mean? What's a healthy weight? Well, we characterize that several ways. We uh, are familiar with BMIs. BMIs are just a division between your height and your weight. And it's, it can be deceptive, but it's helpful to, to know that you'd like to have a BMI below 30, ideally below 25. I think a better measurement in this day and time, especially as it relates to breast cancer, and as I'm in a minute, dementia, is waist circumference. I think that's a more important measurement of your risk factor. Women who have a waist circumference under 35 inches is kind of what we shoot for because the data indicates, whether it's breast cancer or some other things, if your waist circumference is greater than 35 inches, you have an increased rate, and it's linear, meaning that the larger that waist circumference, the greater your risk. Why is that important? We know that there's this concept called visceral fat, the fat around your internal organs, and that gets concentrated in the midsection. And unfortunately for women, genetically and hormonally, that's where the fat tends to go as you get a bit older. Uh, and it, obviously in men, it goes there. I mean, how many of you, let me let's see, raise hands, how many of your husbands have this little teeny tiny little butt and a big old gut? Well, that's, they're at big time risk because they've got all this abdominal fat. And that's risky because that's what gets released into the bloodstream first. And that's where you get, you know, you hear about cholesterol, LDL, uh, all these different types of cholesterols. Well, that's gets into the bloodstream and helps contribute to atherosclerosis. So the, remember that the pear, remember the apple and the pear, the pear where most of your weight is in your hips or your thighs, that's actually healthier than the apple where most of it's right around the midsection. So that was the second thing that they looked at was uh, being in a healthy weight. Now, sometimes if you have access to a body composition analysis like we have in our office, it's a very simple machine, but it measures your percent body fat. Uh, women want to be below 32% body fat. A lot of times there's no way you can figure that out on your own. There's skin calipers. You can actually lay in a pool, and if you float really easily, that's not good because fat floats. So the easier you float, the fatter you are. Next time you're at a party, look around at all the people in the pool, and if the folks that are really floating easily, you know that they've got a higher percent body fat. So... Um, Ideally below 35%, ideally test that in an accurate way, either whether it's in a, a bone densiometry or with the body composition analysis. So that's, that was the number two that they looked at. Number three was either limiting or eliminating alcohol. We know alcohol consumption is an increased risk for breast cancer. And it seems to be pretty much tied to amount. We know that in general, 
For women, that's one glass of wine, uh, one mixed drink a day, ideally three times a week. Uh, and again, that's based on the studies with regards to risk factors for things like breast cancer and heart disease. So it's not eliminating alcohol intake. In fact, there's some studies that show red wine because of the uh, antioxidants contained in the, in the skin of the grapes that still get translated into the wine can have some health benefits, but it's all linked to amounts. So the third criteria besides being active, a low percent body fat or, or healthy weight is decreased or limited alcohol consumption. Number three, or number four, was, these were interesting. They included these two, and I thought it was very interesting that they included these, but one of the categories they included was, uh, they added a point, if you will, to this score, if you never used birth control pills. So, it was a good thing, according to these folks, if you never use birth control pills. If you use birth control pills, you got dinged a little bit. Now, let me clarify that very, very uh, quickly for you because I don't want to spend a lot of time. That's a whole separate topic in and of itself. We know that most of the studies that linked birth control pills to the incidence of breast cancer had two very important caveats. Number one, the majority of them were all done with very high-dose birth control pills, some of the earliest birth control pills that had what we call 50 micrograms of estrogen. Well, we're using them now with 20 micrograms. So most of the studies were done on pills that we're not even using in this day and time. The second is there's a definite correlation between the time of use. In other words, using birth control pills for 25 years is a, is a slightly increased risk than using them for 10 years. So I, I thought it was curious that they included this as part of their evaluation because it's not really a very close correlation and there's so many variables that influence that. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of, of uh, using that as a, as a risk factor. Now, the, the fifth risk factor is another interesting one, and that was in women who were using hormone replacement. Now, remember, let me just a quick refresher. Hormone replacement in menopause is very, very different from a birth control pill. You're saying, well, they're both hormones. Come on, hormone's a hormone. Well, no, that's like saying an antibiotic's an antibiotic. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of antibiotics, and birth control pill hormones are very, very different from hormone replacement hormones. Those are two different beasts. But they use the criteria of, uh, they gave you credit, positive credit, if you used hormones. They didn't care whether you used them or didn't use them, but you had to use them for less than five years. If you used them for over five years, it puts you in a higher risk category. And that's exactly what these massive, huge studies are saying now, that there's this cushion of safety when you look at this massive study done called the Women's Health Initiative, there was no increased risk of breast cancer in women taking hormones until after five years of cumulative use. So we know that there's that safety profile. So that's what they did. They took all these 90,000 women and they divided them into low risk, medium risk, and high risk based on their genetic profile for breast cancer. 
And then they took these same 90,000 and they put them in categories based on these behaviors, whether they were active, whether they had a healthy weight, whether they consumed alcohol and how much, whether they took birth control pills or whether they used hormone replacement and for how long. And they divided them based on how many of those characteristics they possessed into, uh, 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 I forget the term they use, like a, a low or, or, or a, a good lifestyle or a, an average lifestyle or a poor lifestyle. That's how they, that's how they categorized it. And what they found was that regardless, regardless of what category you fell into with the genetic risk, low, medium, or high, regardless, those that had the best score lifestyle-wise, meaning that they were doing four out of five of those things, that they, they ticked off four or five healthy weight, uh, active, not using birth control pills, uh, using hormones for less than five years, uh, low consumption of alcohol. If if they were in four out of five of those, then every category had a reduced risk of breast cancer developing. Every single one of the genetics. So those behaviors completely overrid the genetic predisposition. Now that was linear, meaning that the fewer of those lifestyle things that you did, the less impact it had on the genetics. And that only makes sense, but it also gives great credence to the, to the truth that these things make a difference in a positive fashion. So if you only did one of those five things, you had a, only a very slight reduction in risk as compared to your genes. So the bottom line is, if you have a family history but remember, you're not protected. So quite honestly, if you have breasts, you're at risk, men or women. So that's a significant number of us. To reduce your risk, healthy weight, lower medium uh, intake of alcohol. Uh, again, I, I don't even want to include birth control pills here because there's a, they, they do a lot more good than they do harm. Hormone use for less than five years and uh, being active. So I thought that was a, a very exciting study that gives us back control in a world where we feel we've lost control, not only from all the COVID garbage and all the crazy nutto politics and government and mask or no mask and all the craziness with going on out there, where you feel so out of control being able to look at something as vital and as important as breast cancer, which is still such a common problem, luckily largely a curable problem, but one of the most prevalent cancers for women, being able to actively have some control over what you can do to reduce your risk to live healthy because you folks understand that you're all VIPs because you value in prevention. You get it. You understand so now here's some simple things you can do. So the second study that excited me, and again, it just doesn't take much to get me excited these days. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm easy, to, uh, easy to get fired up, uh, even if I can just go out and walk the dog, it just gets me excited. But this second study 
looked at the prevention or the onset of senile dementia. My, and, and I'd love to see a show of hands, my sense in this day and time, that is probably one of the scariest things that people see and, and fear on a daily basis as you get into the, the fifth and sixth and seventh decade, because we all know people who are suffering from that. We all know people who are dealing with uh, forms of senile dementia, which Alzheimer's is one form, and it frightens us. I, it, it frightens us all. And I think it's, a, it, it's rightly so because there's probably not a single thing that disrupts our ability to bring joy in our lives is that our ability to interact with other people, whether it's through conversation or that whether it's simply uh, being present and, and being a part of their world and, and having them be a part of yours. So it's natural to be frightened of that. And I think uh, almost above any other medical problem in this day and time, largely because people are actually living longer. You know, when the life expectancy was 60, which really was not that long ago, it wasn't that big a deal because you didn't see that many people who experienced that. But now with the life expectancy being in the 80s and 90s, you know, we've seen a whole lot of folks that are dealing with those issues. And just like a heart attack, you don't wake up tomorrow morning and have a heart attack. That sucker's been building for years. And the same thing with most forms of senile dementia. It's a cumulative effect. It's accumulation of toxic byproducts and proteins and, and garbage that gets in the brain. But it happens over years and years and years. So the good news is the decisions we make today, the things we do now, can actually reduce that risk down the road. Now, there's still a whole lot we don't know about it. But we're learning more and more every day, whether it's through uh, basic science or clinical applications. But one thing we do know are some things that can increase the risk. Now, not always does, in, does something you do that increases the risk turn around into something you don't do that decreases the risk. Does that make sense? It sounds you had to follow that. So it doesn't always work that way, but in this particular instance, it does. And it's going back to what we mentioned just a few minutes ago, is this idea of central obesity or increased waste. There's a study that came out just two weeks ago that looked at 7,000 women, and they had followed these women over many, many years. And what they did is they enrolled these folks and they got all these baseline measurements, all these uh, measurements of their waist circumference, of all these different blood tests. And then they followed these people over many, many years. And obviously there was a cohort that developed senile dementia and some that didn't. And so they fed all this stuff into computers and trying to figure out and they found one of the highest correlations with the development of senile dementia is that elevated abdominal circumference. As we mentioned in women, ideally that's below 35. In men, it's a little higher. 40 has been associated with uh, problems going over 40 and for women over 35. 
And it makes sense when you think about the physiology. We understand now that uh, senile dementia is largely secondary to a lot of inflammatory changes. At the core of many of these chronic illnesses is inflammation. And inflammation is just a cellular reaction to uh, either toxic damages to the body, overuse, normal metabolic processes, uh, certainly things we ingest can create inflammatory conditions, obviously viruses and bacteria can, but inflammation is at the source of cardiovascular disease. It's probably an initiator and a propagator of senile dementia. So when people have excess body fat, especially in the midsection, again, that's broken down. That becomes excess fatty tissue is inflammatory tissue. Fat is a very active tissue, as we've talked about. It produces a lot of chemicals. It doesn't just sit there. It produces a bunch of stuff. And one of the main things it produces are these what we call inflammatory cytokines. The same inflammatory cytokines, by the way, that we hear about being produced in the lungs from people who have severe COVID, but just to a greater degree. But these same chemicals can be produced by excess body fat anywhere in the body, but especially in the abdominal area. So you're kind of walking around in a heightened inflammatory state. And when that happens over years and years and years and years and years, you begin to see the results as it accumulates, and whether that's through heart disease or senile dementia. So they actually looked at this study, and they found that and this was the part that really impressed me because, you know, I'm big on prevention. I'm big on taking action. I'm big on doing stuff that can head off problems. So the people who had increased abdominal circumference at the initiation of this study showed an increased risk of senile dementia. But here was the exciting part. They had a cohort of individuals who actually lost weight and who actually reduced their abdominal circumference to a healthy range. And in the process, they actually then ended up being lower at risk for senile dementia. So they were actually able to reverse the risk, the process. That really is what got me. That what was what I took notice. I knew inflammation and increased central obesity could exacerbate it, but I also got excited when I saw that that's a reversible process, just very much like I believe type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease. It is a curable disease. That's one of the things people don't really get right now. They think they have type 2 diabetes, that they'll have it for life. No, it is a reversible disease if treated appropriately. And by treated, I largely mean lifestyle changes. But this study just reinforced the fact that you can change your destiny. You can, with the right plan, with the right help, with the right guidance, you can reduce the incidence of what we fear most when it comes to our health and wellness. And that's being unable to enjoy the life that we have at whatever age this happens. So that's what it was exciting. That's what got me fired up is that we do have some control over that. All right, finally, we've been going on a little bit farther than I wanted to tonight, but I, I get excited about this stuff. I get fired up. just gets me fired up. 
finding something a little bit lighter, a little bit something to end the night on, on a lighter tone. Although I think being able to take control of your health is pretty exciting. And I don't see that as a negative thing. Uh, you just need the, 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 the uh, awareness. You need to plan and you need to follow through. You need somebody to walk with you through it, somebody to guide you through it. And you can achieve anything that you want to achieve, I believe, when it comes to health in most instances. Here's something I saw the other day, and I just thought it was quite interesting. There was a study that looked at about 22 domestic and foreign avocado oils. Now, you've heard about avocados, and you say, oh, they're so full of fat. Well, they are full of fat, but they're full of the good fat, monounsaturated fat, which is good fat. So avocados are good stuff. Uh, Eat your guacamole. Just be careful of the chips. But the avocado is good stuff. But this study randomly went in and pulled 22 different avocado oils off the shelf and independently tested them. And they found that 15 of the samples, 15 of the 22, were already oxidized before the expiration date. Well, what does that mean? Two things. One, it affects the taste. But two, it affects most of the benefits that you're going to get by using avocado oil. Same thing kind of applies to olive oil. That's one of the benefits is all the the vitamin E and the antioxidants. But they found that the majority of these were either containing contaminants or they were not properly processed or they were not properly uh, packaged because they need to be uh, uh, kept away from sunlight or that'll oxidize them. They even found two of them didn't even contain avocado oil. They contained soybean oil because these things are not FDA regulated. This is a perfect example of why you've got to be a critical consumer and you've got to be very wise when it comes to any type of supplements or herbs or vitamins. I've preached that for 30 years. You can't rely on the integrity of the manufacturer. You've got to be your own best consumer. And there's plenty of resources to find out about that now. But this just reinforced the fact that uh, the government's not looking out after you. You've got to look after yourself, even when it comes to food, even when it comes to something like avocado oil. And I will tell you, the three that passed, and I'll give you their names, and I'll actually put this on the website, so, was one called Chosen Foods. And then I thought this one was fascinating, one called Mary Ann's Avocado Oil. And this is one that's readily available at Costco. I thought that was interesting. Mary Ann's Avocado, and then one called Calpure Extra Virgin. And I'll note that two out of the three are California-based, and 18 of the 22, with the majority of them being shown to be not so great, are all from Mexico. That's not a political statement. That's not a racist statement. That's a fact. Just saying you've got to do your homework. You've got to be critical in how you judge uh, what you're consuming. Hey, listen, listen, before I go, I want to tell you again, thank everybody for being a part of this. I love your comments. We've had some spirited debates in the last few weeks on some of the stuff we've talked about. I love the interaction. I love the information. I love the way that you're responding to other folks and helping them out. Just remember that you can always suggest folks that you feel like might be benefited by being a part of this group. We're continuing to grow. Oh, and I almost forgot. I promised you a free book. Well, some of you may already know. All you need to do, and this is for all the new members and all a lot of the old members who had forgotten it or never known. 
All you need to do is go up and push the files button, go to the files, and then scroll down till you see a file that says hormone health. It's a PDF file. That's my entire book from start to finish on a woman's guide to hormone health sitting right there, right for free for you to read right tonight. So if you didn't know it was there, shame on you. You hadn't been looking around the site like you should be. Uh, if you knew it's there, great. You've got had a free book to read. And if you have any issues dealing with hormones and menopause, this book will at least get your thoughts going and uh, maybe even give you a few answers. So free book, go to files, go to hormonehealth.pdf, and it's free for you to download the and read the entire book. My gift to the wonderful WOW VIPers, Value and Prevention. Guys, keep the faith. This is still moving forward. We're having a few bumps in the road, but keep pushing, keep doing what you need to be doing. And until next time, Say it with me. Make healthy choices. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eaker at R-E-A-K-E-R at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.